I have a question for you as we get started this morning. Do you have a serious anger problem? I wonder what you'd say if I asked you that as we were chatting after the service. What would you say? That's the exact question counselor David Paulison poses in the title of chapter two of his book, Good and Angry. I love that chapter. I love it because it's the shortest chapter I've ever read. Now, this is a dream for any of you who don't like to read. Here's a little secret. That whole chapter, it's only three letters. That's it. Y-E-S, period. Do you have a serious anger problem? That question is posed to all of us there in the book, and David Powelson answers it, yes. And I love how he gets cheeky in the application questions after his three-letter chapter. How, would you, how should you respond to this chapter? First, he says, go back and reread it a few times. <laughs> okay, yes, 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 yes. And then he says, do you agree? Do you disagree? Do you have an anger problem? Well, friends, the answer is yes. We all do. This is why anger comes up all throughout the scriptures. We see in the beginning of Genesis, Cain and Abel, the the two brothers. What did Cain do with his anger? He murdered his brother. Read over the Apostle Paul's letters. His lists of sin are filled with matters related to anger. Colossians 3, put away all anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouths. Jesus talked about anger all the time. It's because we get angry. Now, before you say, Pastor Dave, I don't struggle with anger because I've never hit anyone. I don't yell at anyone. I don't raise my voice. Well, let let, let me say this. Anger looks different in different people. Some of us explode. We're like a ticking time bomb, like a a volcano ready to erupt. And when we erupt, everyone around us knows. Others, though, we we simmer. We engage in a cold war, passively, aggressively shunning others, giving icy stares, the cold shoulder. Others just grumble and complain, critical of others, filled with envy, jealousy, displaying a kind of low-level grouchiness and irritability. Some seem to thrive on conflict. Others avoid it like the plague. I'll be honest, I get angry when things don't go my way, when my needs, my wants, my desires aren't met. I get angry. I want no cars on Sheikh Zayed Road ever. And when driving into Sharjah, I want the traffic on National Paints flyover to part like the Red Sea just for me. I want car afford to be empty when I walk in. I want to live in a world where no one eats my leftover shawarma. Is that too much to ask? A world where that donut that I was saving for the morning is actually there when I wake up. I want everyone to like me. I want my schedule to go according to plan. I want to fall asleep when I go into bed, and I want to wake up when my alarm goes off. I want people to always agree with my point of view. When these things don't go my way, when the kingdom of God doesn't match up with the kingdom of me, I get angry. 
And that matters because anger affects us and all those around us. This is what Jesus is going to talk about in our passage today. If you've been with us over the past few months, we've been walking slowly through Jesus's sermon on the mount, Matthew's gospel, chapters five through seven. And last time we heard Jesus telling us that our righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. These were the teachers of the law, the ones who prided themselves in keeping it. But Jesus says, there's a problem. It's not that the Pharisees were too moral. It's that they weren't moral enough. It's because the scribes and Pharisees were only living according to the externals and not getting to the heart of the matter. And now Jesus is going to show us the issues of the heart with six examples. Here is how your righteousness exceeds the teachers of the law. Six examples. First, we're going to see today murder and anger. Then we'll see next week adultery and lust, then divorce, and so on. Well, today, Jesus is going to show us that anger is serious. So reconcile with one another quickly. If you're taking notes, that's the main point. Anger is serious. So reconcile with one another quickly. We'll take that main point into two sections. So first, Let's look at how anger is serious. Matthew chapter 5, verse 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Here you have a restating of the sixth commandment from Exodus. They obviously would have known it from the original recipients of the law. Murder is prohibited by God. This is because humans are precious and of infinite value because Genesis tells us that each and every one of us are made in the image of God. We can't treat each other with indifference, much less the unlawful premeditated killing of one human by another. But the discussion here is not really about murder at all. That's what the Pharisees thought about the commandment. It's the standard they lived by. No murder, okay, we're doing pretty well. We haven't killed anyone. But the religious leaders were only looking at the external interpretations of the sixth commandment. Remember, Jesus says it has to, your righteousness has to exceed the teachers of the law. It's not just murder. It's the heart behind the murder. Jesus says in verse 22, but I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother liable to the council And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. This is an astounding verse for many reasons. Think about what we just read in verse 21, the law of God, you shall not murder. And one verse later, Jesus uses the emphatic I, but I say to you, Jesus is telling us what the law of God means. He's putting himself above the Pharisees and the scribes, above all human law definers and teachers. Friends, if you're new to Christianity, maybe you wonder if Jesus ever claimed to be divine. Well, look no further than the passages we've been studying these previous weeks. Last week, we saw that he stood above the storm and calmed it like only God could. A couple weeks ago and today, we see that he has authority over the law of God. This is God in the flesh. As we read the Bible, it becomes clear that Jesus is not just a man. 
He does things that only God can do. He says things that only God can say, like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. God has come to us. His words have authority. And he's saying here that the law's standards are much higher than the Pharisees' practice. They were restricting the sixth commandment to physical murder. But Jesus says murder includes bitter thoughts, insults, slanderous words, and anger. What exactly is anger? David Pallison defines it this way. Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Let me say that one more time. Anger is active displeasure towards something that's important enough to care about. Anger is the way we react when something we think is important is not the way it's supposed to be. Not all anger is bad anger. Jesus got angry at the money changers at the temple He despised the religious legalism of the Pharisees. Ephesians 4 instructs us, be angry and do not sin. James says, be slow to anger. The scriptures nowhere tell us to never be angry. They assume you should be angry at various times. Poverty, child trafficking, our sin, These things should anger us. It's a righteous anger. There are times when if we're not angry, we're wrong. But that's not normally our problem, is it? Think back for a minute. When was the last time you were angry? Was it this morning? maybe last week. And by and large, it probably wasn't for the right reasons. What what was your recent anger towards the injustice in the treatment of orphans, the exploitation of widows, or towards your own sinful flesh? Or was it because your coworker wasn't doing his share of the work? Because your child wouldn't listen to you on the way here this morning? Now, if we're honest, most of the time we're angry is because our day was messed up. Our preferences weren't met. They've been adjusted. Our needs, our wants, our desires were thwarted. Well, Jesus delivers quite a rhetorical flourish to make his point here about the seriousness of anger. He says it in three different ways. Did you notice just one right after another? Whoever insults his brother, liable to judgment. Whoever is angry with his brother, liable to judgment. Then the counsel for those who are insulting their brother. And then finally, don't miss this one. Whoever calls his brother fool, liable to the hell of fire. This would have certainly gotten those original listeners' attention. Sure, the judgment, sure, counsel, but the hell of fire? This word for hell is Gehenna. It's reference to the valley southwest of Jerusalem where human sacrifices were once offered to pagan idols. And then in Jesus' day, it was the big rubbish dump 
for Jerusalem. They'd throw out their trash there. They would even burn bodies, the corpses of bodies that they deemed unworthy for burial. And the smoldering flames of Gehenna never went out. It was a visible representation of hell. Well, those comments of Jesus here, they might take us aback a bit. Our anger, our anger worthy of such judgment? Well, it should startle us. I mean, no human court would charge us with the crime of anger. No judge is going to say, ma'am, you've been charged with two counts of anger towards your children, and I find you guilty as charged. You receive two years of prison time and two years of community service. Now, that's never happened. No court has ever punished you for internal anger. But see, God cares about something deeper than the physical act of murder. God cares about the heart. God truly demands our obedience to his commands, but but what he's after is our heart. And the focus on the heart was revolutionary. Jesus is turning the culture upside down. Back in Jesus' honor and shame culture, anger and revenge would have been the expected response to someone offending you. If you didn't fight back, you'd be dismissed this week. You'd be shamed. Your lack of anger and absence of revenge would have been humiliating to the village around you. Sure, the culture understood the no murder thing, but no anger, no insults. You couldn't fight back. The listeners would have been shocked. In essence, Jesus is calling his followers to be publicly shamed for failing to defend their own honor. Jesus turned everything upside down. Jesus made shame honorable and made shameful what the culture deemed honorable. A complete reversal. God's standard of living is different. And there's judgment before God for anger. This is a strong warning here in the text. It's one of the main points of the passage. Anger is serious because there's judgment for it. You insult your brother, you fool The judgment is a hell of fire. We have to feel the weight of this text this morning. Anger brings judgment. That's what Jesus is saying. Anger brings judgment upon ourselves, and rightfully so, because God is holy. And because we underestimate the pain our anger inflicts on others. Jesus' second and third example show us that one of the most common manifestations of anger is seen through our words. One author says, anger is murder in the mind. And then when spoken, it becomes verbal murder. Maybe you've heard the phrase, sticks and stones may break my bones, but names will never hurt me. Have you heard that phrase before? Well, it's the most ridiculous statement in the history of the world. Nothing could be further from the truth because words and names and insults do hurt us. They, they, they do cripple us. I still remember the exact words said to me on the school bus when I was 13 years old. An angry word said to us can live forever in our hearts. Brothers and sisters, don't ignore the murder in your own voice. 
You may never have held a lethal weapon in your hands, but you have one in your mouth. Proverbs 12:18 says, "Reckless words pierce like a sword. Words can hurt." Once you say something, you can ask for forgiveness, but you can't unsay what you said. You can't hit the rewind button and have a do-over. Once you've said something, the hurt comes instantly, like a sword or a knife piercing the skin of the body. It's there. There may be healing, but the scar will remain. Now, years ago, during my pastoral internship, I was preaching my first sermon, and next to the pulpit on the platform, I placed a, a big box, and I wrapped around it yellow caution tape. I just let it sit up there as people were walking in to the church building. Then I got up for my sermon. I let the suspense build for a few minutes, and then I started taking objects out of the box. The first object I pulled out of the box was a knife. And I said, knives are dangerous, but knives are not the most dangerous thing in the world. And then I got out a loaded gun, and I pointed it at the youth sitting on the front row. Now, of course, it was loaded with water, and it glowed in the dark. But nevertheless, I shot those youths with the water, and it felt really good. But then I held up that gun, and I said, guns are dangerous, but guns are not the most dangerous thing in the world. Then I pulled up one last item, and this one was kind of gross. Now, for those of you who know, I'm a bit of a germaphobe, so this was difficult, but I put on two pairs of the most thick gloves I could find, and I lifted up this object, and I held the object out for the congregation, and I said, here, here is the most dangerous thing in the world. Can you guess what it was? It was a large, disgusting buffalo tongue I bought at the butcher shop, just right there for everyone to see. I washed my hands for an hour afterwards. I think we ran out of soap at the church bathroom. The point? The tongue is a fire. The tongue is a sword. Our words are dangerous. Our words can bring destruction. We can assassinate one's character through angry words. We treat the damage we do with our lips lightly because we don't see the corpses that we leave behind. Physical murder, you can see it. But verbal murder, well, think about it. Anger, insult, slander are ugly symptoms of a desire to get rid of someone who stands in your way. And there's always someone in our lives that we'd love to see gone from our lives, right? You think to yourself, if only that one person wasn't in my life, then I'd be happy. If that one church member would just leave to go back to their home country, then I'd love my church so much. Or if that coworker would just choose a different career, I'd love my job. If that family member would just join the circus and go on a 10-year tour, then I'd have peace and quiet. Or maybe you've wished suffering on someone, had a twinge of excitement when a rival or coworker struggles. Or you've been bitter when someone else got the promotion at work or higher marks at school. Parents, do you speak gracious words or angry words to your children? 
Are you commenting on your child's looks in negative ways? Are you calling them worthless when they score low on that exam? Are you degrading them for their second place finish? That kind of language murders the soul. Or how about children, jumpstart, regeneration, teens? How are you responding to your parents when they place loving restrictions in your life? Do you combat them with evil thoughts? Or maybe you don't roll your literal eyes, but are you rolling the eyes of your heart? That's murder according to Jesus. Or how about this? Do you get angry when someone from a particular culture is unresponsive to your greetings? Do you feel self-righteous and direct anger towards someone who's not doing the same ministry you're doing in the church? Do you treat those outside the church differently than you treat those inside the church? It's called living a double life. Your Christian life here on Fridays and at your community group, you're one way towards others. But what about the rest of the week, Sunday or Saturday through Thursday? There's your life with the church, and then there's your everywhere else life. What if, for the sake of illustration, a video camera followed you around for the week? In your car, running errands, in the break room at work, the car park at your accommodations, kids at home, in the classroom, out last night with friends. And then on Friday morning, we had a surprise for you. You walk in here and we say, surprise, you've been chosen for us to show all of your, not highlights, but all of your lowlights from the week on these screens for everyone to see. And then we presented audio of your conversations for everyone to hear. Now, that's pretty frightening, isn't it? Well, what if we added to that your thoughts just running through the background like a soundtrack? Because for many of us, our anger stays on the inside. What would we notice on those screens? What would we hear? Would you cringe hoping that we wouldn't play that one conversation or reveal your angry thoughts as you interacted with your spouse this morning? What kinds of things do you get angry about? Well, the first thing we need to recognize is that David Powelson's three-word chapter is right. Do we have a serious anger problem? Yes. It's just grace that our anger hasn't turned into physical murder. I love this illustration that Tim Keller often gives of an acorn. It's the nut of an oak tree. He reminds us that the entire tree is in there. If you plant and fertilize and water an acorn, it'll grow into a whole tree. The entire life of the tree is inside that acorn. That's the same for us. All the worst sin is in our hearts. We're depraved. That's why Paul says he's the chief of sinners, because he knows that everything that makes a murderer is in his heart. He's just not fertilized it yet. My well, friend, don't let your anger grow. Don't feed it or let it grow roots. This is what happened to Cain in Genesis chapter 4. What started with self-righteousness and judgment, it grew to bitterness and resentment and anger and then murder. If this has become a real problem for you, I want to make sure you know that there's hope. 
not going to teach you a new breathing technique or tell you to take up kickboxing to release your bad anger. Our goal is not better anger management, but worship realignment. Our anger is the result of wrong worship. In those moments we explode externally or internally, we're worshiping something other than God. There's some idol we're treasuring more than God. It could be comfort for you or control. Maybe it's power. Or maybe you're coveting something you don't have. You have to change your worship and lay down your preferences and desires. Surrendering to God and trusting that he's in control. When you do that, you realize you can't direct your anger towards another because God has withheld his anger from you. Jesus Christ stood condemned in your place. Our sin and rebellion against our creator God means we deserve death and judgment. We deserve the full display of God's righteous anger. But here's the remarkable thing. If you're a follower of Christ, if you follow Jesus, the full anger of God the Father came down not on you, but on Christ on the cross. God the Son took the judgment that you deserved. Oh, the the cross is our hope. He died to forgive you of your anger and to free you from your anger. And on the third day after his death, he rose from the dead, conquering the grave, proving he was God. And get this, if you're a Christian, the Bible says that same power that rose Jesus Christ from the dead is alive in you. That same power that rose Christ Jesus from that tomb is at work in you. Oh, you can conquer your anger issues by looking to Jesus to get strength. When we worship Jesus, our anger fades away. Forgiving others always flows from seeing the forgiveness we have in Jesus. When we realize that Jesus faced the anger and wrath of God and that our sins are removed as far as the east is from the west, our anger subsides. When Jesus is on the throne of our lives, we won't start a nuclear winter when we're offended. Traffic won't paralyze us with rage. Our spouse or coworker won't crush us when we're criticized. The student in our class can't demoralize us because we know we're right with God. See, when you trust Christ and you look to him, your anger begins being replaced by love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Turn to Jesus and find hope for your anger today and to find forgiveness for the anger of yesterday. Anger is serious. But there's also a second thing we see in our passage. While anger is serious, Jesus tells us that we must reconcile quickly. Anger is serious, so reconcile with one another quickly. Number two, reconcile quickly. There was a a verbal battle that the great Winston Churchill apparently had with Lady Astor, a member of the British Parliament. They used to squabble all the time, just going back and forth. They despised each other. They really didn't like each other. And there's this famous quote where Lady Astor says to Churchill, Mr. Churchill, if I was your wife, I would put poison in your tea. Well, Churchill responded by saying, Lady Astor, if I was your husband, I would drink it. 
Now, for those of you who are a little slow this morning, by 2 p.m., you'll get that. Now, we can laugh because it's funny. We can laugh, but broken relationships are only funny when we're not the ones going through them. It's no laughing matter when we're the ones involved. And Jesus gives us two illustrations exposing our response to another's anger. The first, in a setting of temple worship. Look at verses 23 and 24. So if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Well, Jesus gives an illustration of a worshiper taking a sacrifice to the altar of the temple of Herod. Now, this was a big deal. It's not something you did every day. The disciples from Galilee rarely made the 100-kilometer journey to Jerusalem. There were no Ubers, no metro to get you there. Maybe once a year, you'd make this epic road trip. The temple was crowded on these holidays. You couldn't just walk up to the altar. There would have been a long queue wrapping around the temple, greeting you upon arrival. And you waited in the heat as you entered through the concentric courts, the court of the Gentiles, then the court of women, then the court of men. And then you would go up to the court of priests where only the priests could enter. And you would go right up in front of it to offer your sacrifice. But you finally get outside of that most inner court, waiting through all the lines, going through all the courts. You were ready to offer your sacrifice. You would have your hands on that animal, ready to slay it. And Jesus says, If in that moment you suddenly remember your brother has something against you, you've got to go. Rather than offering your sacrifice, you fight through the traffic to go backwards through those crowds to get to that person. This wasn't a recommendation. It's a sharp command, leave. There's something more urgent than the sacrifice. I'm not sure what you did with the goat. I guess you found someone to watch it for you, but you leave it there. It must have been incredibly awkward. Everyone's like, what are you doing? You're in the front of the line. You're ready to offer up the sacrifice. Where are you going? There was no easy way to reconcile in those days. There was no email, phone, no, no WhatsApp to say you're sorry. You had to go in person. Well, Jesus' point is clear. Reconciliation is more important than the externals of worship. This is a temptation for all of us, to go through the formalities of our ministry and at the same time to have unfinished business with someone. But according to Jesus, if you're unwilling to reconcile a relationship, you're unfit for worship. There's no precise modern example to compare this to, but perhaps on a much smaller scale. Uh, Imagine you wake up on a Friday morning, you get yourself dressed, you eat breakfast, you get your children out of bed if you have them, you put them in their church clothes, you drive over here or take the bus or metro, you say hi to folks, you find a seat, you start singing worship songs, you're sitting under the preaching of God's word, and you suddenly see a face. Not literally, but you see the face of someone you've offended flashing before your mind. And conviction comes over you. And so you don't even finish worship. You try to sing, but you're blocked. 
could be a former business associate, someone you were romantically involved with, a teammate, a classmate, a neighbor, or even your spouse sitting next to you or who's back home. And Jesus says, you get up during that final song, or you get up during the sermon. It might mean walking across the room to give someone a hug, or it means driving home or getting on the phone. Now, I thought hard about my own life this week. Is there anyone in my life that I needed to reach out to? I figured I'd better do it during the week, or else I could be in some trouble during my preaching. I imagine a scenario where I'm here Friday morning, I'm here... uh, at the the pulpit, and I'm preaching my sermon this morning, and what if while I'm preaching, a face suddenly flashes before my own mind? Do I I step down from my my preaching right in the middle of the sermon? That'd be pretty awkward. But that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying here. You stop your preaching— You stop your worship and you reach out to that brother or sister whom you've hurt. Maybe in the morning you're having your devotional time, you're reading your Bible, you're praying through your prayer list, spending time with God. And right then you remember someone you've insulted, someone you've hurt, someone who is angry with you. You close the Bible. That's what Jesus says. You stop your worship and you go to that person. You reconcile quickly. It's a sense of urgency that Jesus has in these words. And he continues that same feeling of urgency in verses 25 and 26 with the legal example. Jesus says, come to terms quickly. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. That's an example of an unpaid debt. Your creditor takes you to court to get his money back. Jesus says, pay him back now, or you'll eventually be handed over to the police. You'll get stuck in prison, and you won't get out until you've paid everything back, which is an impossibility. You can't earn money from prison. Well, the point is, if you don't reconcile quickly, you'll receive the maximum penalty. Did you notice something similar about both of these examples? As I was studying it this week, it it stood out to me. The first example, you're there at the altar. Your brother or sister has something against you. Jesus deliberately says, it's the other person who's angry. It's not your anger he's talking about. And you may actually be innocent. But Jesus doesn't care whether you're right or wrong. He says, leave your gift. There's no disclaimers. And then with the legal example, it's someone else who's owed the money. I mean, remarkably, neither illustration deals with your anger, but with your offense that has prompted someone else's anger. These last verses are about our response to another's anger. And Jesus says, you urgently reconcile to them. This is not at all what we'd expect Jesus to say. If you're a listener here in this culture, you'd respond to one's anger with your own anger. And Jesus says, don't fight fire with fire. You go to them in love. Now, this is stunning. Remember, if anger leads to the hell of fire, then we need to consider both our brother or sister's soul and even our accuser's soul as precious, as one whose anger can take them to judgment. We need to be a community that looks out for each other, 
We need to love each other enough to push through to have potentially awkward conversations for the sake of our souls. Christians run to the tension, run to the conflict, not in anger. That's not how you approach someone. We don't get angry because someone else is angry with us, but we run to the tension to resolve it. We work hard to prevent murderous attitudes in others towards us. It's called peacemaking. This is an illustration of the beatitude we looked at several weeks ago. Now you might say, Matthew 18 tells us that we're to go to someone if we have something against someone. Well, sure, that's true too. The point is, either way, you go to your brother or sister. It doesn't matter who started it. Even if you have no fault in it, someone has hurt you, well, you go. If someone's hurt in your life, you may have not not done anything to cause that. Jesus says, I don't care. You go to that one who's hurting. Well, Redeemer Church, how are we doing? Do you need to approach someone and pursue reconciliation? Of course, you can't force them to reconcile, but you do as much as you can toward that end. Does anyone come to your mind? It might mean not leaving this room until you've talked to that person. This week, we're actually going to take our moment of silent reflection before we pray and sing. We take a moment of silent reflection each week. It's at the end of our service. It's an important time of our worship together. It's a moment to sit quietly in a busy week where everything is so noisy. We quiet our hearts and we pause to reflect on our own lives and on the teaching. I want you to answer one question today. Is there anyone I need to reconcile with? Remember, Jesus doesn't say wait a week and pray over it. Put it on your to-do list to write a letter sometime in the future. No, he says leave your sacrifice and go. And it takes courage to do that. It takes courage to go to someone and say, I'm sorry, please forgive me. It takes courage to make things right by serving, giving, or helping the one you've hurt. I don't know who it is for you, a family member, someone at church, work, school, I don't know. But I know it's a beautiful thing when we humble ourselves and pursue reconciliation. Remember, you can take steps towards reconciliation, not because you have the strength, but because Jesus took steps towards you. And because the power that raised Jesus from the dead believer is in you. I mean, think about it. You deserve God's wrath. You deserve the hell of fire, but Jesus faced a full cup of God's anger and wrath in your place. You did nothing to earn this love, but by looking at this love, how can we then not reconcile to others? By remembering and looking at and contemplating and meditating on Christ's love for us, how can we hold grudges? When looking at the fact that Jesus took the full anger of God upon himself, how can we be angry with one another? How can bitterness grow in our hearts? How can we speak murderous words to one another when God has acted so kindly with us? I 
Ask Jesus for grace to reconcile. Ask Jesus for grace to be a peacemaker. Ask Jesus for grace to take courageous steps towards those you may have hurt. Well, let's take a moment of silent reflection now on the question, is there anyone I need to reconcile with? We'll take a minute now, then I'll close in prayer, and we'll sing together. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for Jesus. Thank you that he willingly took your anger and wrath that we deserved. Once his enemy, we are now seated at his table. Would we be quick to reconcile with the world and with each other? Would our peacemaking be as distinct as salt in the world? and shine bright like light into the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.